Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all of the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. While I've got your attention, I'm really excited to announce that Covered Press is now offering its journalist story management software for free for the first 500 journalists who sign up. As a journalist, I know how difficult it can be keeping track of all my stories, invoices, and communications with editors. Covered Press streamlines the whole journalism process and keeps you organized. Sign up at CoveredPress.com today to get one of the 500 free spots available. And now, enjoy our podcast. I'm hoping that our industry will start to see that we need need more of those entry-level jobs to try to groom people and get them ready for a job like mine and make sure they have that support going forward. When you read a story about political corruption or the changing demographics of a community, the value of the data journalism that supports that reporting becomes obvious. Yet many news outlets are failing to foster a data team in their newsrooms. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Mary Jo Webster is the data editor for the Star Tribune in Minneapolis. In August, Mary Jo participated in a webinar presented by Pointer to help teach journalists to better cover the changing demographics in their communities with the release of the 2020 U.S. Census numbers. Mary Jo, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thank you for having me. So first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, how did you get involved in journalism and, and uh, data journalism in particular? Well, I'm the rare bird who decided to be a journalist very early on in life. Probably back in fifth grade, I thought I wanted to be a writer someday, but somehow I only saw being a writer as a novelist. I thought that was the only path. And this is despite the fact that my parents read the newspaper every single day. I don't know how I didn't know this, but somehow by ninth grade or so, I learned, wow, there's journalism is a thing. I could write, but not have to do an entire book. And that's what I decided to do at that point. This was the 1980s. So data journalism was very, very much in its infancy, even when I was an undergraduate. So I I didn't learn about data journalism at all until the late 90s when I was a reporter in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. One day I was slaving over the city budget, trying to calculate the percent change for each department between their current budget and their proposed budget for the next year. And I was sitting there with you know, a piece of paper and a calculator. And one of my colleagues came over and said, could I show you how to use Microsoft Excel? I didn't even, I didn't even know Excel was on my computer or what it was. I knew nothing. He showed me how to do this and I was enthralled immediately. I couldn't believe how quick and easy it was. I should point out that I hated math. I avoided math classes in high school and college went to the mat to avoid them. And here I was super excited about doing math in a spreadsheet. So that got me started. And that was, I just realized that was exactly 25 years ago this fall that I first learned that. I started doing some training. And then in 1999, I started at the University of Missouri in a graduate program. I got a graduate research assistantship to work at investigative reporters and editors. They trained me up and put me to work immediately. So I was I was basically learning and then turning around and teaching and using the skills instantly. It was essentially a two-year immersion program, if nothing else, and then became a full-time data journalist after that. Wow. That's a great story. I kind of track with you in the same thing, wanting to be a writer to begin with, but then suddenly 
realizing that journalism was a path you could take. And like you, I also realized you didn't necessarily have to write a book. Uh, and there was an attraction to that. But, you know, data journalism, I mean, I, I didn't personally get involved in data journalism or, or thinking about data journalism until I, I went back to school and got my uh, degree from American University. And at that point, that was part of the training. But this is something you've been doing, you know, I guess for a better part of two decades, using it day in, day out. Has much changed? Or I guess maybe it probably has changed. How has it changed? In a lot of ways. The big one is computing power. When I first started, if you were to run a big query on a database, it was real common for us to set the query to run and then go get coffee and come back and maybe it would be done when you got back. Today, that same query can run in a blink of an eye and with a much, you know, a tiny laptop can do far more than the computers we had 20 years ago. But the other thing is even the tools. One of the first tools I learned was, was a database program called FoxPro. It doesn't even exist anymore. But we've also come to the point of far more free open source software that we didn't have 20 years ago. You used to have to pay for everything. And that was a burden for a lot of news organizations as things got bad in the industry. So the introduction of the open source software, programming languages like R or Python, even there's all kinds of other open source tools that have been created over the years that are free and so useful that it's made our job a lot easier. I feel like I can be a lot more efficient than I used to be. I mean, some of that is becoming fluent with data, but some of that also is the tools that we have. I remember there was one year I was cleaning up parking ticket data and the street names were all spelled a million different ways. You know how it says like Main Street East. Sometimes it was East Main Street. Other times it was Main Street East. And it was, sometimes East was written out. Sometimes it was just the E. It was a train wreck of a data set. Literally, I don't know, two months later, this piece of software came out called Open Refine that made doing that kind of cleanup a thousand times easier. I just, I shook my head going, oh my gosh, I wish I would have had that tool a couple months ago. I think there are a lot of journalists out there who would like to incorporate more data journalism into what they're doing, but they're not sure how to do it. But let's let's talk a little bit about the storytelling aspect of it. What is it that looking at these data sets, how can that help your reporting? Well, it's really thinking about data as a source. And it really is a source, just like all of our human sources. And think about when you're going to try to find somebody who knows something about what you want to write about. You're going to go try to find a human who has a lot of experience, a lot of depth of knowledge. You know, hopefully they've got some details that they can share with you. A data source can do the exact same thing. And in some ways, they might, data might be able to do it better. For example, you know, you go to a government official and say, how much overtime did your department rack up last year? He might not know that off the top of his head, but if you get their payroll database, you can figure that out for yourself in, in a blink of an eye. So I personally think the best approach is thinking about what stories do we want to tell? What's happening in our community? What are the most impressing issues of the day? And what data sources do we have that could help answer key questions, uncover things that maybe our human sources don't want us to know? and fill in some of those details that you would not get some other way. So following up with what you're saying, can you give some examples of the types of 
you know, stories that uh, you've been able to do at the Star Tribune? Sure. So kind of a fun one for me was several years ago, I, I was on um, Ticketmaster, you know, at 8 a.m. on the morning that tickets for the Dixie Chicks were coming out and I really wanted to go to their concert. And I, you know, I got on there right at the, the right time and I was trying to buy the tickets and it was just spinning and spinning and spinning and it wouldn't let me buy the tickets and the system, you know, blocked me out and I didn't get to buy tickets. And I'm like, how is this possible? I was here on time. I was doing everything I was supposed to do. What's wrong? And, you know, doing a little research, it's, it's the ticket resellers like StubHub and those kind of places coming in and trying to get all those tickets. And so we wondered, could we measure how many of those tickets vanish immediately from, you know, somewhere in that process of when that those tickets go on sale and when you see them start showing up on StubHub and those other sites. And so we scraped data from several ticket resellers for several upcoming big concerts in the Twin Cities. And we were able to prove that Beyonce who did not do anything to try to stop the ticket resales, something like 20 some percent of her tickets were on those resale sites within 24 hours after becoming public. Whereas Adele, who had taken many precautions to try to stop the resale, only 5% of her tickets ended up on the resale site. It was a really powerful story that was able to show just how much this is happening. And it came from my own life experience and something that I wanted to answer. That's, that's really neat because I would imagine that much of your audience was really kind of happy to see that story because everybody's been frustrated in trying to get tickets and suddenly there aren't any. Where do they all go? How did you present that? Was that just sort of in the text of the story or did you create some sort of uh, graph or chart to show that? Really, the art was really a very, very simple presentation of pictures of Beyonce and Adele with some big numbers right below it. You know, too often data journalism gets equated with some sort of data visual where you can search data and you can scroll around it and do something like that. And that's not always the case. Sometimes you can have the same level of impact with just a simple chart or graphic or some numbers or some, you know, comparing two things. It doesn't always have to be fancy. And yes, our readers were, I think, blown away by that story. And, you know, quite frankly, our music critic who ended up helping write the story, he also was just just so grateful because it was a story that he hadn't been able to wrap his arms around without the data. You know, how do you tell that story? How do you get humans to tell you, here's what's happening? Here's where those tickets are going. You know, they could take a wild guess, but they couldn't quantify it and they couldn't show that it's a systemic problem. How is the um, data journalism integrated at the Star Tribune? into the newsroom? I think extremely well. I would love for more reporters to be doing their own data work, but we have a surprising number who are quite capable of getting their own data and doing some pretty important work on a regular basis. And the editors view it as a very valuable resource. We've had some extremely successful projects in recent years that would not have been possible without data. And that has really opened their eyes to the need for data on a regular basis. So, for example, probably the the most successful piece was a series of stories we did in 2018 called Denied Justice that started out with a reporter covering a court hearing, a University of Minnesota 
athlete had been charged with raping three women, fellow students, and he was convicted. And one of the victims approached the reporter and told him about how awful her experience was with the police, that they did not believe her. They had believed the lies that his fraternity brothers had told. You know, they treated her badly. You know, why were you out drinking? Why did you let him take you home? Things like that. Those kinds of things we all know about. And as the reporter, his name is Brandon Stahl, he started asking experts about this and they said her experience with the police was totally normal. And the fact that a conviction occurred in her case was totally abnormal. And Brandon came to me and said, this is backwards. And can we prove how often these cases, when a victim goes to the police and reports a rape or sexual assault, how often do those cases result in a conviction? All the experts kept telling him it's a really, really low number, but we really don't know exactly. And so we decided to build our own database. We collected thousands of investigative case files from police departments around Minnesota, read all of them, and then built a database by entering key pieces of information from those reports, including things like, were the charges forwarded to the, the district attorney? Was somebody charged? Was somebody convicted? And then some things about what the police did. Did they interview a named suspect when they had one? Did an investigator interview the victim? Did they go to the scene if that was an applicable situation? And what we were able to show on a very systemic basis is that they were not. Only about 8% of the cases resulted in a conviction. Only about 25% of the cases even went to the prosecutor. And the police only half the time did those very basic policing 101 steps that we were tracking. So we paired that with Brandon and another reporter, Jennifer Bjorhus, spent months finding victims willing to come forward and tell their story on the record, names, photos, all of it. And they told their harrowing stories of their experience with the police and the prosecutors in the months following their, their rape. And the combination of the systemic data, the data proving the systemic problem, and those heartbreaking stories was just too much and policymakers could not ignore it. And we've seen immense change in Minnesota as a result of that, including this, this past legislative session, they made some major overhauls to our state statutes on sexual assault, including addressing a couple of the big issues that we reported about in our series. And that was such a, an important story to work on. And it was great to see the data you know, be an important part of that. If you go read that story, you're not going to find very many numbers in it. It's the numbers are serving as a spine that is holding up the whole story that we're telling. The numbers are how we prove this is a systemic problem and that why we need to write about it. But the stories are really about the women and their stories. And it's a great example of how data journalism can support reporting and how reporting it's got this backup of information, how you're able to craft narratives by, you know, finding the, the people who are affected by it and interviewing the officials. So it's not as if, like, the data is somehow replacing the, the actual footwork of, of reporting, but the combination of both is what, you know, gives that story so much impact. Now, is that something that came from 
the idea of the story that, you know, this person says that what happened to her was just what was happening elsewhere? Or is this something that, that came from the data end? It started with, could we prove that her case is not an anomaly? Because we wrote a story about her back in 2017, I believe. And it was a really great story. It was heartbreaking, but it fell a little flat. Policymakers did not you know, step up and say, oh my gosh, we have a problem because it was only one woman. And well, we wanted to know, was her story an anomaly or not? And the only way you're going to get at that, get that, prove it definitively is with data. We had lots of experts telling us, oh, yes, oh, yes, we see this all the time. It's, you know, it's very, very common, but that's not a strong enough story to affect change. Yeah. The other part of this that we really haven't kind of talked about or addressed is the government information aspect of it. I assume that there was a, a FOIA request that went in to get this data? Lots of FOIA requests, because we requested data from 20 different police agencies around Minnesota. And so it was, it was a big lift. How many uh, FOIA requests were successful? Well, all of them. We eventually got all the data. It took 18 months to get all the data. And it was several thousand case files. Most of them came as PDFs. A few came as paper. <laughs> Which doesn't make your, your job any easier, but at least you have the data to jump off of. Since you've been doing data journalism for a while, and we're talking a little bit here about FOIA, has it become easier to get data sets, to, not necessarily crime statistics, but other data sets from, from the government that you're able to build stories off of? Yes, not all data, but the movement toward open data and having data portals has been significant. We've had great luck here in Minnesota with the city of Minneapolis and the city of St. Paul, a little bit with the state of Minnesota. Some agencies are better than others. Some of it also is, I think, having journalists in a community constantly putting pressure on those agencies to make data public and do it in a reasonable fashion. And you know, we've essentially been grooming these agencies to make life better for everybody. I've had some very good experiences with, say, the State Department of Education, where I can call them up and say, you know, I'm wondering if you have data on X. And they will set up a phone call with their data people and me, you know, a conference call kind of thing. And they'll tell us what they have and what it would take for them to produce it and how much time and money and and help us understand what they have and what they don't have. And it's been a very helpful experience like that because it avoids ending up with the wrong data or miscommunications on their end and they don't understand what you want and then they spend more time on it than they should or something like that. So I have seen some huge improvements. The stuff that goes online, like in the data portals, tends to be the most basic information that you might want and doesn't always have all the depth of detail you might want. For example, you can get incident reports for the Minneapolis Police Department practically, I think they come out like once a week or something like that. So it's very, very close to real time, but it's not every incident report that they do. It's the major ones, kind of the stuff that gets reported to the FBI. And it doesn't have, say, the dispatch data where they all their 911 calls they responded to and all the traffic stops that they did, which uh, sometimes is what you want to get into. So sometimes you, you have to go 
actually do the data request to get something deeper. You know, I know you mentioned, uh, you know, receiving documents and PDFs as in paper. Is there a greater prevalence of being able to get data that's actually in a form that you can readily use? I mean, has that improved? The reason I ask this is we, I did an interview a couple of years back with somebody at ProPublica, and they were trying to track the incidence of racial violence across the country. And what they found was that every police district had a different way of reporting things. That was a, a struggle for them. But I guess from your perspective in Minneapolis, is there, you know, has that changed? Are you getting more data, more a percentage, a larger percentage of your data coming to you in a form that you can actually use? I haven't seen much change. I think it's been good here in Minnesota. I've been working out of Minnesota for 15 years now, or 16, something like that. I think in terms of the format that you get the data in, is it a PDF or is it an Excel file or some data type file? I think that more often comes down to what you ask for and how you ask for it. If you just say, hey, I want a list of all the crimes in Minneapolis last week, you're probably going to get a list and you're probably going to get a PDF because you didn't specify what you wanted. Now, I think what ProPublica was experiencing is maybe those police departments truly tracking things differently, like saying how they would define, for example, a fifth degree assault or how they define sex assault or how they define the smaller crimes in particular it might show up differently. That is extremely common. There's a lot of apples and oranges kind of things. If you're trying to get data across different agencies, you have to make sure you understand what their data is and how they define things and how they track things in order to make sure it's going to work properly. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the pointer webinar that you were involved in. How, well, how did you get involved in it? And uh, what was the webinar trying to accomplish? So that webinar is part of a much bigger effort that it's kind of a collaboration between Pointer and the Associated Press and big local news and census reporter with the, the ultimate goal to make this census data more easily accessible to journalists. At least the last two censuses, there have been similar efforts done by somebody because the Census Bureau releases that first batch of data, especially in a very, very ugly format that is not something a average journalist could actually go download and open. It's even a little bit of a big lift for a seasoned data journalist like myself to process that data and make it in a usable format. So what happened is the Associated Press and big local news partnered to be ready to process those data files on the day they were released by the Census Bureau and make data files avail freely available to anyone on the big local news platform so you could download files. And Census Reporter has been working on a tool that will allow you to take the census data from the block level, which is the smallest geography level that the census has, and summarize it into things like neighborhoods in your community. So for example, I could give them a map file of all the neighborhoods in the city of Minneapolis. And that's neighborhoods is not a census defined geography that the census releases data for, but it's a common thing that, you know, as our readers want to know about, they think about, you know, I live in this neighborhood. They don't think about, I live in this census tract or census block. 
So since this reporter is working on a tool, it's not quite ready yet, but they're working on a tool to try to allow you to get census data in that geography as part of this broader effort to make it more accessible for reporters. And Pointer was involved then to, to do the training part. Like, how do we make sure reporters are ready for this data and can use it, know how to access it, know how to use these tools and things like that. And that's still an ongoing process. I know there's going to be more coming from Pointer. I don't have details yet, but there will be more. I got looped in by Dee Cohn, who's a journalist and who now works at the Pew Research Center. She has a long history of writing census stories over many decades. She's recommended they have someone with more technical skills than she has. So she recommended that I be included on that on that webinar. So who were the who were the people who were coming to the webinar? Were they editors or reporters? I'm not 100% sure. I recognized a lot of data journalists in there, believe it or not, but I think they were probably mainly reporters. The other thing to remember is a webinar like this is really necessary because this data only comes out once every 10 years. Think of how many journalists have been added to our rosters in the past 10 years who have never worked with census data before or the, the decennial census data, I should explain. Like it's there's other census data that's available on a regular basis, but the decennial is, is its own little beast and, and they keep changing it every 10 years. So that makes it more challenging as well. So if somebody wanted to access this information or, or this tool, I know you said that it's not ready. Should they be sort of be following Pointer or is there a website that you could point them toward? So the census reporter tool is not ready. That's a very specialty tool. I wouldn't worry about that too much. The data files, though, are available on big local news to download. The Census Bureau last week announced that they have added it now to their data.census.gov. Um, there was, what, about a month delay between when they released the big ugly data file and now when they've made it accessible in their data cutting tool. That's data.census.gov. So there's, there are now a couple of ways to get that data. The big lo local news files, I think, are a little more accessible because they have married together the 2010 results with the 2020 results. So you can see uh, how much change there has been in terms of population or race or ethnicity over that decade, all in one file. If you go to data.census.gov, you'd have to download the 2020 data and then separately download the 2010 data. And maybe you can put them together on that new tool. Data.census.gov is a relatively new tool. And I have not spent a ton of time with it because I access census data through other more advanced means. <laughs> Two things. First, how does somebody get their newsroom to do more data-driven stories? I think finding examples from elsewhere that they would like to emulate is a really good first start. The other thing is just finding those stories that a good reporter will find a story that can't be told without data. You know, pitching it to the editor that we, we really need to do this. I think that a lot of newsrooms do have people with at least some data skills they may not be tapping those people to the fullness of their skills. So the big thing though is newsrooms need to invest the two things that unfortunately are just uh, is scarce right now, which is the money to send these reporters to some sort of training and then the time 
to give them to work on their skills and develop stories from data. Learning how to work with data is like a foreign language. It's something that doesn't happen overnight and it takes practice. If you pay for someone to go to, let's say the NICAR bootcamp, which is a week-long data training, it's a great kind of immersion situation where you come out pretty well ready to go at the end of that. But let's say you get home from that training and then you sit on it and don't do anything for three or four or five, six months, your skills are going to be rusty that quickly. And I think that's probably a good example of maybe how somebody who wants to become a data journalist or pick up those skills is to go to like NICAR or something like that. But in general, what's somebody who wants to become a data journalist? What what would you advise them? What skills should they be trying to get? So someone who wants to be a full-time data journalist like myself or? Yeah, or to bring more data-driven stories or to write more data-driven stories you know, pick up some skills so that they can, you know, search data sets and and incorporate it in their reporting. So I guess I can kind of answer both questions with a stream of things. Everybody, even if you don't want to be a full-time data journalist somewhere down the road, the way to get more data skills on your plate would be to take advantage of whatever training opportunities you can find and mentorship opportunities. So for example, the NICAR bootcamp is a great thing. I'm involved with the Center for Health Journalism. They do a data fellowship program every year. And that is a wonderful thing because we do a training for a week and then you get a mentor for six months to help you do a project. But then there's also a very informal mentoring system within the data journalism world. Once you start meeting other data journalists like myself, you'll discover that they are more than happy to help you because somebody helped them on the way up. I've got a line of people so long that I I can't even remember all the names probably who have helped me over the last 25 years. And I feel like I'm never gonna be able to pay that forward enough because it really got me where I'm going. You have to just be willing to reach out to those people, even if you don't know them that well and say, hey, I'm stuck on this, this thing with my data. Can you help me get unstuck? And sometimes that's all you need to get over the hurdle and push your skills forward and get a story done. And once you get a couple stories done, it starts to become a little easier and you become a little more fluent in the, in the language of data journalism. And you start to see more opportunities because you, you see things through a data lens. You start thinking about, okay, I'm going to go do this story about X. Who are my sources and what are my data sources here? And sometimes that's all you need to get yourself going. Now, if you want to go full-time data journalism route, it's a tough road. I will tell you that because our industry does not have enough entry-level data journalism jobs. Too many of the job postings for a data journalist are you need several years of experience. You need to have all these technical skills a lot of time they really want, at least that's their goal, they want someone coming in who can get up and running without any handholding, without needing a support system. And sometimes that is because you might be the only data journalism in the room, journalist in the room, and it has to be that way. But I'm hoping that our industry will start to see that we need need more of those entry-level jobs to try to groom people and get them ready for a job like mine and make sure they have that support 
going forward. Right now, I think there are two paths to kind of get to a job like mine. One is to work as a regular reporter, generating those data-driven stories, practicing your skills, showing you can do it, building up your skills, getting whatever training you can during those years, and then trying to transition into one of those jobs. I'm not sure how easy that is, though, these days. I think it's gotten harder. The other path I've seen a little more success with, I think, is to go through a graduate program like I did. Stanford has a wonderful graduate program that includes a lot of data training. Mizzou's program is even more beefed up since I was there. And I think there's a lot of data work done at uh, Arizona State. I think those are the big three. Columbia University in New York as well has, has a lot of stuff. And then I guess the new one that I'm excited to see is in Maryland. And I think I'm going to blank on the the exact school. Derek Willis just started teaching there. He's been a longtime data journalist as well. So there's more happening. And they're actually going to start a graduate program that can be done remotely. Look that one up. It was just announced a couple months ago. That could be a real game changer for someone who's sitting, you know, in Montana and they want to be a data journalist, but they're, you know, they're far away from a school, they're their paper doesn't give them the time and the money to go to training or something. Who knows? That might be a good option. I've been talking to Mary Jo Webster, the data editor at the Star Tribune in Minneapolis about data journalism and the U.S. Census for 2020. Mary Jo, thanks for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.